Are you looking for a way to save a little money? What about getting your subscriptions under control? If so, then I've got just the solution for you. Rocket Money. With the help of Rocket Money, I was able to find a subscription that I completely forgot to cancel before the free trial was up. I'm sure you've all been there. And Rocket Money can help me cancel it. Between streaming platforms, apps, delivery services, and even parenting and kids subscriptions, it's hard to keep track of exactly what you're spending and how much it all adds up to each and every month. Not to mention the fact that it seems every single day one of those subscriptions suddenly jumps up in price. Rocket Money alerts you when this happens so you're never caught unawares. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With them, I can see clearly what my monthly spending is and how it compares to the month before, making saving money and taking control over my finances so much easier. They'll also try to negotiate lowering your bills up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll even deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. That's rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. Rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. Today's podcast is brought to you by newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front-row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, Newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at Newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. The power of love can make even the most level-headed person do some strange things. On August 7th, 1994, a woman was born who would fall in love with a man that wasn't accepting of her children. A woman who would do anything to spend the rest of her life with the man she so desperately loved. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Elizabeth Diane Fredrickson Downs was born on August 7th, 1955, to a family living in Phoenix, Arizona. She was the oldest of four children and, according to the stories she later told about her childhood, was sexually abused by her own father at the age of 12, which may explain why the once obedient daughter who followed her family's conservative values seemed to become more defiant once she reached the age of 14, though that does seem normal for most teenagers. Diane struggled to fit in with her peers and, in an effort to become more popular, broke almost all of the rules her parents had laid out for her and her siblings. It was around this time that she dropped the Elizabeth in favor of Diane and started to mature in both her demeanor and style, 
showing off the good looks that she knew would get the boys' attention. And it worked. She began a relationship with 16-year-old neighborhood boy Stephen Downs, despite her parents' disapproval. And by the time she was 16 years old, she had lost her virginity to the boy who lived across the street. After high school, Stephen made the decision that most young men made around this time and entered the Navy, while Diane attended Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College, promising each other that they were going to remain faithful to one another and make the long-distance relationship work. Diane broke her promise and, after just one year in school, was expelled for promiscuity. Despite this, Stephen and Diane decided to get married after he returned home in November of 1973. The marriage was a rocky one, with arguments about money and infidelity popping up pretty early on. But whether planned or otherwise, the pair welcomed their first child, a daughter named Christy, in 1974. After giving birth, Diane decided to join the Navy, but returned after just three weeks of basic training, citing severe blisters. She would later claim that the real reason she left was that Stephen was neglecting Christy back at home. Welcoming Christy into the family didn't seem to make their marriage any better. But again, whether by choice or otherwise, in 1974, Diane and Stephen welcomed their second daughter, Cheryl Lynn. With two young children to care for, Stephen decided to get a vasectomy, but Diane ended up getting pregnant for a third time, but this time chose to get an abortion. In 1978, the family of four decided to move to Mesa, Arizona, where both Stephen and Diane found jobs at a mobile home manufacturing company, a place where Diane found a number of male suitors to carry on affairs with and became pregnant for a fourth time, welcoming Stephen Daniel Danny Downs in 1979. Stephen knew the baby wasn't his, but chose to accept Danny as his son and raise him alongside Christy and Cheryl Lynn. The following year, the tumultuous high school sweethearts finally filed for divorce. In the years following her divorce, Diane, free to do as she pleased, moved in and out with a number of different partners, having affairs with married men, and all the while, for some reason, trying to reconcile with Stephen. To try and make ends meet as a single mother, Diane signed up to become a surrogate mother, but failed two psychiatric exams, one of which showed that she was psychotic a fact that she found funny and would brag to her friends about. Years later, she would be accepted into the program and get paid $10,000 for her services and be inspired to start her own surrogate clinic only to have the venture fail before it really took off. By 1981, she was working full-time as a postal carrier for the USPS, which meant that the children stayed with family or Stephen while she worked. But when they were with their mother, neighbors voiced concerns about their level of care. According to the stories, the children were rarely dressed for the weather, seemed hungry all the time and asked for food whenever they got the chance. And if Diane was unable to get a sitter, she would leave six-year-old Christy in charge while she went to work her long shifts. And in a later testimony from the neighbors of the children's grandparents, Cheryl Lynn claimed that she was afraid of her own mother. With parenting on the back burner, Diane began an affair with a co-worker named Robert Nick Knickerbocker and fell madly in love with the married man. He was the man of her dreams, and Diane begged Nick to leave his wife so that they could finally be together fully. Still in love with his wife and suffocated by her constant demands, Nick ended their relationship and a devastated Diane moved back to Oregon. Obsessed with the idea of their happily ever after, 
Diane continued to write to Nick. And on their final visit together, he, once again, tried to end the affair that she was so desperate to continue. When she didn't seem to get the hint, he told her that he had no interest in, quote, being daddy to her three kids. This final blow was more than the 27-year-old single mother could bear, and she decided to take matters into her own hands in the name of love. On May 19, 1983, Diane Downs pulled up to a hospital emergency room entrance and, through sobs and screams, told medical staff that she and her three children, Christy, now eight, Cheryl, seven, and Danny, three, had been shot multiple times at close range. All three children were covered in blood. As they went inside the car to try and assess the situation, declared Cheryl DOA. Christy, who was so close to death that they assumed she too would be declared dead, was rushed into surgery, suffering from a stroke along the way. And Daniel's wounds to his spine rendered him paralyzed. Now, considering her children suffered from such brutal injuries, it was shocking to those at the scene that Diane seemed to only have a wound in her arm. Diane, who, when first asked about what happened, told everyone that she stopped to pick up a hitchhiker while her three children lay asleep in the back seat something most parents would have avoided. She then said that the shaggy-haired stranger turned around, shot all three children while they slept, and shot Diane in the arm as they wrestled for her keys. After securing the keys, an injured Diane jumped back into the car and rushed the children to the hospital as fast as she could drive. Now, while she told this story, she remained eerily calm and collected. Not a single tear was coming from her eyes, and investigators listened on with a sneaking suspicion that something was amiss. The stories didn't make sense. First off, why would she be driving down abandoned rural roads in the middle of the night with all of her children, let alone allow an unknown stranger into her car? Second, if she was so rushed to save her children, how did she have time to wrap her own arm before arriving at the emergency room? In a world where the 24-hour news cycle was just getting its start, the story of an attractive American housewife and her three shot children spread like wildfire. Everyone had their opinion on the case, and those who believed Diane worried that a murderous madman was loose in their town. A manhunt began for the unknown shooter, but when searches yielded nothing, police turned all their attention on Diane the woman who seemed so unaffected by her children's attack that she giggled and got excited to show off a reenactment of the incident. So they started looking into Diane and her life and soon found out that she owned a 22 caliber gun that she failed to tell police she owned, the same caliber that was used in the attack. And inside of her apartment, they found unfired casings belonging to that 22 caliber, love letters to Nick Knickerbocker, and a diary that spelled out a very clear motive. The man she loved didn't want any children. So when a man came forward saying he had to go around a car matching Diane's because it was going so slow, roughly five to seven miles per hour instead of the speeding frenzy that she described, police were certain that Diane wasn't the victim of a murderous stranger. While all of this was happening, Diane, who was sticking to her tragic story, lost all national sympathy when she did an interview and showed her clear disregard for her dead and critically injured children, made clear her incredible self-centered attitude, described the crime with a sense of disinterest that was unbecoming of a young grieving mother, and took the opportunity to announce that she was pregnant with a fourth child because she missed her other children so much. 
there was very little doubt that she should become the prime suspect in her own children's shootings, especially after Christy woke up from her coma and upon seeing her mother for the first time, nurses noticed an obvious spike in her vitals despite saying she could not remember what had happened the night she was shot. All of this, coupled with the forensics not matching her story, was enough to earn her arrest on February 28, 1984, nine months after the shooting. Charged with one count of murder and two counts of attempted murder, Diane's trial began the following May. The trial became a circus, and most of her conviction rested on the shoulders of young Christy Downs, who, once her speech was recovered, described in court how her mother shot all three children while parked on the side of the road, and then, to make it look more believable, shot herself in the arm. She was just nine years old when she faced her mother in court. On June 17, 1984, a pregnant Diane Downs was convicted of all of the charges against her and sentenced to life imprisonment, plus an additional 50 years. The judge made it clear that he did not intend to ever see Diane walk free. While behind bars, she was diagnosed with narcissistic, histrionic, antisocial personality disorders. She escaped from prison on July 11, 1987, but was recaptured 10 days later, receiving five more years for the incident. Considered for parole for the first time in 2008, Diane has continually been denied, especially after she continually reaffirmed her innocence. She stands by her story of a bushy-haired stranger. In the aftermath of the trial, Christy and Stephen were adopted by the prosecutor Fred Hughie and his wife, Joanne, while her fifth child, a girl named Amy Elizabeth, was seized 10 days before her sentencing and adopted by Chris and Jackie Babcock who renamed her Rebecca. Christy, married and with a family of her own, still suffers from a speech impediment from the night that her mother shot her, while Daniel, who works with computers, is still paralyzed from the waist down. Rebecca found out who her biological mother was when she was a young girl, and at first, attempted to have a relationship with her behind bars. But while appearing on The Oprah Winfrey Show and on 2020 as an adult, she admits that she regrets reaching out to Diane, saying that her mother is a monster. She wrote a book about her feelings and works with children who have behavioral problems. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on August 8th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.